happening? Good to see you all. We are going to learn a little bit from the last Parsha in Bereshis today. Um, unfortunately, we can't spend our entire life on Bereshis, although we can if we really wanted to. So uh, let's go to page 268, and we're going to read through a passage. We're, gonna study, we're going to study this passage in its more classical form, and, and then I'd like to share with you uh, an alternative read on this passage, uh, one that, to me, is a little bit more compelling in terms of the simple understanding of what's going on. So, Parshas Vayechi begins, it, it's ironically, uh, although the, the name of the Parsha is Vayechi, means to live, and, and Yaakov lived, but it's really a Parsha about death. It's about the passing of Yaakov. It's about Yaakov passing away and how he organizes himself and organizes his family for his passing. He's going to spend time giving blessings to different of, of to his brought to his sons. He is going to make clear who his successor is, although that's not really the focus of our topic today. What we are going to focus on is his conversations with Yosef before he dies. Okay? So he has Two conversations with Yosef, and I can't emphasize that enough, that there are two separate conversations with Yosef. In my mind, before I studied this properly, I assumed there was one long conversation with Yosef, and you'll see why I'm making such a fuss about the fact that there are two conversations with Yosef. So to better appreciate this, let's jump in. We are going to, let's just begin from the top. We'll start at the beginning of the Parsha, Pasach Chavches, page 268 says the Torah like this, Vayichi Yaakov be'eretz Mitzrayim, Yaakov lived in Egypt, Shva Esreishana, for 17 years. Okay, Vayichi Yimei Yaakov Shnei Chayav, and the days of Yaakov's life were, Sheva Shanim Varbaim Uma'as Shana, 147 years. Okay, quite the long life. Yaakov lives, Yaakov lives for 147 years. Vayikruvu Yimei Yisrael Lamus, and Yaakov's death became close. He had some indication. He, he was aware of the fact that, you know, things were, maybe he was, he, was, he was slowing down, whatever it was. He was aware of the fact that he was getting closer to his death. And he therefore wants to start planning ahead, which is always a good thing to do. We want to plan ahead. Well, you know, you know it's, uh, everyone's going to pass at some point. So we learned from Yaakov over here and our commentators emphasize that it's crucial that we get our life in order uh, it's important for people of all ages to do, um, and that's what Yaakov does over here. So what does he do? Vayikra livno Yosef. He calls his son Yosef. Vayomerlo, and he says to him, Imna matzasi chen I find favor in your eyes. Simna yadcha tachas yerechi. Please place your hand by my thigh. This was, an, in the ancient world, a way of taking an oath. Uh, there are two understandings of why that was the way of taking an oath. One is the way of Hirsch understands it, is that a thigh holds up the rest of the body. And so it demonstrates a foundation, it demonstrates strength. And therefore, by placing one's hand on one's thigh, it's a way of saying that my statement over here is firm, it's committed. I'm fully committed, it stands on good ground. That's how our first understands it. The more midrashic way to understand it is that what do we do when we make an oath, even in, in the Western world? We usually hold on to something that's sacred, right? We, oh, we shake, well, we shake hands sometimes, that's more of a commitment. But if we take an oath, like if someone gets sworn into office, we hold a Bible, we hold a chumash. So in the ancient world, what is the one holy thing that exists? There's one mitzvah, and that is bris milah, the circumcision. So the idea of holding on to the thigh is a way of connecting oneself uh, to the circumcision. It's a way of saying we're connecting ourselves to something holy, and that's how we're making this oath. And so you'll find throughout Barashas, whenever the avos, when the forefathers are invoking an oath, there's this idea of place your hand by my thigh, and this may be the, the symbolism. Again, whether it's, it's saying it's something which is firm, whether it's saying that it's something which is uh, connecting something holy, one way or another, this is the way they took an oath. What's the oath 
that he wants Yosef to take. I want you to do kindness and truth with me. What is the great favor? Do not bury me in Egypt. This is the oath that he wants Yosef to take. Now, why he has 12 sons. Why does he ask Yosef to be the one in charge of ensuring that he is not buried in Egypt? What are your thoughts? He has the power. Excellent. So this is, that's exactly, exactly what Rashi says. Rashi says, addressing this question, why does he choose Yosef? And he explains that Yosef has the ability. Yosef has the, 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 the wherewithal to be able to go ahead and take care of this. And that's why he turns to Yosef. Great. Any other possibilities? He's also with his quote favorite. Okay, so he's also the one that he turns to often, perhaps. And we haven't seen him turning to Yosef for all these years. So we know that he was his favorite many, many, many moons ago. Perhaps he still is. We don't really know, right? It's, it's an interesting thing. The, the relationship when they reunite, we saw that very briefly last week. But what the relationship looks like after they reunite is open. You know, there's, there's really not a lot there in terms of what the Torah tells us. But possibly, possibly from what we know in the past. Um, you know, the way the Midrashim say it poetically is that they say that Yosef was the one who brought me down. Yosef should be the one who brings me back up. Okay, so whatever exactly that means. Okay. I'm going to jump the gun over here. I'm going to jump the gun and start opening our eyes to another approach here for this entire passage. And I'm going to share something from a thinker that I shared, I think, something from last week, maybe two weeks ago, and that is Professor Leon Cass. You could maybe tell that I'm a a fan of his. Um, So he suggests that the reason he chooses Yosef is not because it's his favorite son and not because of the fact that um, it's not that the, the fact that Yosef has the ability but rather he wants to convey a message specifically to Yosef, specifically to Yosef. Now, Yosef, we know, has spent most of his life in Egypt. Now, burial in, in, in the modern world doesn't have the same connotation that burial has in the ancient world. I think we studied this together in this context, maybe in our, in our Shabbos afternoon class. But in Parshas Chayesara, when Avram is trying to bury Sarah in Hebron, there is a long give and take between Avram and the locals about whether or not he could bury Sarah in that place. The way that some commentators understand the significance is as follows. In, in the modern world, you know, where you're born is where you have citizenship. If you're born in the United States, you're an American citizen. Just like that, right? In the ancient world, your identity revolved much more around where you were buried. Now, I know that means that you only have an identity after you pass there's some truth to that, by the way. Our identity is really only, uh, we only really, people only make sense of our identity when we stop speaking and stop doing. Uh, as long as it's still happening, our identity is still in flux. But, but that's an aside. The point is that where we are buried is really what defines where, who we are. And that explains some of the classical commentators. The reason the people in Hebron did not want to bury Sarah that quickly, and the reason they were subtly pushing back, is because if Avram would be allowed to bury Sarah, not as a guest, but as an owner of land, this is their land where you get to be buried, that means that you actually live there. That means that you're a citizen. Being buried there is actually a sign of your citizenship and connection to the land. So where we're buried is much more of an identifier than where we live, which is an interesting thought. Okay. So with that in mind, uh, Professor Cass suggests that Yaakov is speaking to Yosef here, not because of his abilities and not because he's his favorite son, but Yosef more than anyone else needs to hear the message of how important it is 
for Yaakov to be buried in Israel. He wants Yosef to hear, I do not belong here. And if I don't belong here, hint, hint, right? You may not belong here either. There is a part of me, right? He's trying to convey to Yosef how important it is to be connected to the land of Israel and not to the land of Egypt, okay? And that's why he's choosing Yosef and Yosef in particular. Again, not abilities, not favoritism, but Yosef, the one who is the most Egyptian, needs to hear this message more than anyone else. And we're going to come back to that idea and develop it a little bit further as we continue. Okay, let's keep on reading. I will rest with my fathers. I will carry me from Egypt. And bury me in their burial place, meaning with my ancestors. And Yosef says, I will do like you say. Now it's interesting. He says, take an oath. What does Yosef say? He says, I will do. He does not take an oath. So listen to what Yaakov says. Vayomer he shavali. There's, there's an interesting tension over here, right? Yosef says, I'll do it. And Yaakov says, no, 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 no. I wanted you to swear, right? Vayishavalo. And he swears. Okay? Now, what's this give and take all about? Right? Does Yosef not want to take an oath? Does Yosef not plan on keeping his word? Right? So, it, so it, according to the simple read of this text, it's a little bit hard to understand. Why does Yosef not take an oath? Right? If he's really asking because he knows that Yosef has the ability, he should take the oath. But if, like Professor Cass is suggesting, it's not about really ensuring that Yosef will do it. It's more about conveying a message. Then Yosef doesn't really have to take an oath. This whole thing is a formality. The whole thing is really trying to convey a It's not so much about Yosef, are you really going to do it or not? Of course Yaakov trusts Yosef. The point is he wants to make sure that ya- Yosef gets it. So Yosef says, I get it. I'll do it. He doesn't have to take an oath because it never was about Yaakov not being sure that it would happen. It was just that he wanted to make sure that Yosef heard this message. He says, I'll do it. And Yosef, Yaakov, to emphasize the point, says, he shavali, I want you to take an oath. But he shavali takes that oath, right? Do you hear that? why I think it reads a little bit better according to Professor Cass? Okay, if that, that point didn't resonate, let's keep on going. And Yisrael, Yaakov, bows to the head of the bed. There's a lot of discussion about why he bows to the head of the bed. Some suggest that the divine presence, we actually have a halacha, that the divine presence rests over the head of someone who is ill. That God is there with someone who is ill, specifically in that time of pain. Uh, there are halachos about, you know, not sitting on the bed with the ill person and, and showing respect in that place, not just for the ill person, but because the divine presence is specifically there. And that's how the Midrashim understanding, understand it. The Hamigdavar, the Nitziv, understands the reason he bows to the head of the bed is because he wants to show deference to Yosef, but he's afraid to bow directly to Yosef because if he would, those who are watching might interpret that to be a way of saying that you are going to be my successor and Yaakov is being very careful to not do so. Which is, again, not our discussion today, but something certainly worth storing away. Yes? Do you need Adim when you have an oath like this? Yeah. So what is the nature? So the answer is no. An oath is binding without witnesses. Okay. An oath is binding if it's done between me and myself. That's why we're so careful about, you know, not saying things like I swear, I promise, you know, those yeah. things are binding whether or not they're witnesses. So okay. yeah. Okay. That said, presumably, although they aren't mentioned, there are presumably other people there. Yosef, again, is second in command. You can imagine he travels with an entourage and, and Yaakov has his caretakers, right? But, but yeah, but strictly speaking, you don't need witnesses. Okay. okay. So now look, then what follows... Let's just see it, how you see it inside. I'm looking for it. Um, what follows is as follows. Okay, that, that was terrible English. One second. Um, where are we? Here we are. Okay, so if you notice, there is now a gap. There is now a gap between, the net, between Pasuk Lamed Aleph and Pasuk Aleph. That, gap, that little gap you see at the end of a paragraph, right? That end of a paragraph is something you would see in the Torah as well. 
Okay? It's what we call a pay. They don't put the pay in. But if you were open a Sefer Torah, right, we're now just finished verse 31. We're about to start verse 1 in chapter 48. Still on page 268. That little gap there is evidence in the Torah as well, demonstrating that it's two separate passages. Okay? There, we just finished interaction number one, and now we are about to read interaction number two, but it's two separate narratives, two separate stories. Okay? Let's read it together. And it was after these things. And it was told to Yosef, Your father is sick. Now, um, it was just mentioned earlier, Roberta, you mentioned about Yosef's relationship with his father. The Mefarshim point out, Rashi, I believe, mentioned it over here, the Midrashim point out that the fact that Yosef had to receive a message that his father is ill is indicative of the fact that Yosef didn't spend a lot of time with his father. Now, the, the Midrashim suggests that the reason he didn't spend a lot of time with his father was actually for the sake of his brothers, that he didn't want to spend too much time alone with his father because he never wanted to reveal what really happened to his father. Which is a fascinating approach. One way or another, one way or another, Yosef is not in constant contact with his father, and therefore he needs a messenger to let him know your father is progressively getting ill, something he, if you would have seen him every morning, would have known himself, but he didn't, okay? He takes his two sons with him, as Menashe, as Ephraim, both Menashe and Ephraim. And it's told to Yaakov, and he says, Your son Yosef is coming, has come to you, Yisrael, Yaakov, strengthens himself and sits on his bed. Pasa Gimel, we're on page 270 or 271. Now, listen, Yaakov now jumps into a speech. We'll have to understand what is the function of this speech. So Yaakov says to Yosef, which is one of the names of God, appeared to me when I was in Luz, in Eretz Canaan, and he blessed me. Okay? So now Yosef, let's, let's just try to understand, let's keep in mind the context. Yo, Yaakov is about to die. Yosef comes to visit him before he dies. Yaakov wants to convey a message to him. Okay, let's listen closely. What is the message that he's trying to convey to him? What is the story that he's telling him? And why is he telling this? These are the questions we're going to have to address. So he says, God appeared to me in Eretz Canaan and he blessed me. And he said to me, I am going to make you fruitful. I'm going to increase you and I will make you into a, into a, a nation of, a, a congregation of nations. And I will give this land to your children after you as an eternal inheritance. Okay, so Yosef is told by Yaakov that God promised Yaakov an increase of children and the inheritance of the land. Now, when was this promise given to him? At what point? They're in Luz, let's keep in mind, they're in Luz already after they, after they, Yaakov had spent a good many years outside of Israel. He returns to Israel, or Eretz Canaan at the time, with 11 sons. Binyamin is not yet born. And when they enter Israel at this point, Yaakov is told that you're going to be increased, multiplied, and you're going to inherit this land. Okay, and this is what he's telling Yosef over here. And now continues Yosef, excuse me, Yaakov, Pasuk Hei, verse 5. And now, your two sons, which were born to you in Egypt, before I came to you in Egypt, they belong to me. Are going to be to me like Ruvain and Shimon. Okay, so at this point, right, this is well known. Yosef is told by Yaakov that his two sons, Yosef, uh, Ephraim and Manasseh, are going to be like one of the tribes. They're going to be just like Reuven and Shimon. 
Okay, which seems like a beautiful gift to Yosef. Okay, let's first begin um, with uh, addressing this. This seems a little bit funny, right? We just finished spending all this time. We read a whole story about how Yaakov plays favoritism to Yosef and it caused them to end up in Egypt, right? And now what happens? They reunite in Egypt. And what does Yaakov do? He goes ahead and he gives Yosef's sons a double portion, something he doesn't give to any of the other sons. A little strange, right? Mm -hmm. Any thoughts? No? Okay. So, you know, I'll mention, there's there's a lot to say here. I think, you know, there's some, a, a quote I mentioned to you all, I think, in the past, uh, in a different setting, from a Vadim Steinsaltz, and, and, and the, 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 the lack of natural proofs or indications to absolute equality in the natural world. Ravadin Steinsaltz, uh, I'll read you a quote. Okay, there's a bit of a tangent, but I think an important one um, and something we've talked about in the past, but I'll read it. It's a full quote and it's worth reading. He says like this, egalitarian ideas are not supported by any evidence. The inequality of man is blatantly apparent. The only way one can find any support for the idea of equality is in a very difficult religious concept, the concept that people are born in the image of the Lord and are therefore equal in some fundamental way. There is no other argument that I've heard that serves any purpose. All egalitarian movements are an outcome of Judeo-Christian ideas that contain within them the notion of receiving a divine soul that for everyone is more or less the same. All forces everywhere, within and without, work against equality. People are so inherently different, not only different, but unequal, that it requires a constant struggle to accept the notion of some kind of equality. The only justification for the idea is what you may call a mystical one. Even though people don't appear to be equal, there is something equal in them. From this point of view, whether it is a good thing or not such a good thing, hierarchy seems to, be, seems to me to be a given element inherent in creation and in nature. This is nature. Everything else is an attempt to change nature. Okay, I can feel some people's heads probably exploding in different circles hearing this, but Rabbi Steinsaltz is making an argument, right? Let's be honest, right? At the end of the day, yeah, you know, we have all these great bumper stickers and slogans. You could accomplish anything in the world. No, you can't. You can't. Let's be honest, right? I'm saying certain people, I can never have been a physicist. I'm telling you now, trust me, okay? It's just not, it wouldn't be possible, right? So, so we all have, yes, we could all grow more. Don't get me wrong. But let's, we're all different. We're born different qualities, different abilities. You know, no matter what, I will never have made it in the NBA. I'm telling you now. I could have practiced all day and all night. It would never have happened, right? So there's certain things which are out of the question. It's not equality. It's not, that's the way God made the world. So, so I think that's just a background piece I think we always have to keep in mind whenever we have these questions of, you know, Kohen over Yisrael or, or, or one brother over the others. This notion of everything, everyone being absolutely equal is... You know, the Torah is, is, as he points out, is the one that promotes the idea that there is value. There is something of value that equates us in some way that we all have. We all have a portion from God. There is a part of God, so to speak, in each of us, a divine soul, which equates us because God is absolutely equal. Every, you can't break God into pieces, but, but in that respect, we're all equal. But in every other respect, we're unequal. So this notion of, hey, it's not fair how people are treated differently to begin with, I think we have to check our, you know, our biases, where, this, where is this coming from and whether that's a, 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 a legitimate approach or not. So that's background, I think, worth noting as a good aside. Um, Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky does point out, he says, you know, yes, favoritism is bad. Sure, certainly, favoritism is, is bad. But treating everyone the same is foolish, right? He's speaking much more practical. That's, that was the... That was the uh, philosophical idea. Now let's speak very practically, okay? Again, we're addressing the question of why Yaakov blesses, gives a double portion to Yosef's two sons. So before addressing the why, but the assumption that we make 
that Yaakov should treat all of his sons the same way is not, also not so simple. Because again, playing favorites is bad. But playing equality is also bad. Equal means that, you know, some children need special treatment. It's as simple as that. All children cannot be and all people cannot be treated equally. Some people have different needs. And so, again, without zooming in too much in terms of why Yosef's children need this blessing more, although we'll get to that in a moment, but in a general sense, it's the notion of everyone should have been treated equal, that, that, that gut reaction question is not such a fair question, not such a good question. Because yes, favorites are bad, but equality is also a very dangerous thing. It, 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 it's not true to our uniqueness when everyone is, is being treated exactly the same. We're all so incredibly different, and it's important that we interact with one another in, in relation to those differences as well, that we don't treat each person the same. I don't mean that like more wealthy people to be treated better. I mean to realize who each person is that we're speaking to and to speak to them in their own language, within their own needs, and to respond to that. That is something that, that we can't dismiss um, in, in this context. Okay, so now, now let's bring ourselves back a little bit to this particular discussion. Let's ask ourselves a question. In, in the Torah, a firstborn gets a double portion. Why? Why does a firstborn get a double portion of inheritance? Okay, according to Jewish law, and actually a firstborn son gets a double inheritance, as opposed to a firstborn woman. Why? A daughter. Why? Is it uh, sexism? Like, what, what is the rationale behind that? He's his parents test, um, tester, I guess. So he got everything wrong. Yeah, my older siblings might agree. Okay, right? So the first one we do everything wrong with, and the next ones hopefully come out okay. Okay, uh, that, that, is, that is possible. Uh, that is possible. So, so the, the, Torah, the Gemara actually lays out the reason and, and spells it out and basically states the most practical explanation is that the firstborn in the ancient world, you know, they, they suggest, I, I forget where I saw this, that, that most early immigrants, I'm talking about like 1600s, uh, who came to America were not firstborns. Anyone want to take a guess why? They had, exactly, exactly, right? Even in Europe, right? Even in, the, in all of the Western world, right? The firstborn son took over. Now, the firstborn son takes over the, the state. According to Jewish law, the firstborn, the one who takes over the state, has a responsibility to everyone else in the family. They have to manage the estate, and they also, right, so they get the dividends of that, of, of, of owning the state, but they also have a responsibility to look out for the rest of the family. They are the new, uh, you know, uh, father figure for, for the family. That's the responsibility, but every, you know, there's responsibility and there's privilege. So the double portion, that's why it goes to the son. In the ancient world, most typically, the daughters would not be the ones overseeing the business. Of course, there were exceptions, but for the most part, it was the son who would oversee the estate. They would be the oldest son in all cultures, not just Jewish ones, would oversee the state. So the son is given a double portion with strings. Yes, you get a double portion, but you have greater responsibility, right? With that approach, we could understand, by the way, why Yosef over here is given a double portion according to the classical approach. And it fits with what we just read in the last episode. Yosef was given a very specific responsibility. I want you, you who are capable, as Robin points out, to take me to Israel, to Eretz Canaan, so you get a double portion in response, Right? Meaning there's a connection there between the two things. You have more responsibilities, but you're also going to get extra benefits. There is a balancing act. Um, so that is the simplest way to understand what we're reading. And, and that would fit. Again, so it's not necessarily favoritism in as much as it is, sorry, in as much as it is a matter of uh, compensating Yosef for the extra responsibility that he has in bringing his father back to Israel. Okay? Also because they were raised in Egypt and didn't have the benefit of Jacob's, uh, you know, 
Okay, good. So, so some of the commentators, excellent. Some of the commentators do point out, you know, there's a little bit of a extra terminology over here. You know, if you look at the, the it, it emphasizes, look at, look at, let's read a Pasuk hey, one more time to just emphasize the point that Raman just made. The two sons were born to you in Egypt. Before I came to you in Egypt. Like, why is he keep on emphasizing the Egypt, the Egypt? And it seems like what we're really trying to emphasize, there's almost a reward to them, perhaps, and there's a different way of looking at it, that they somehow succeeded in living this upstanding moral, I imagine monotheistic lifestyle, right? Despite the fact that they lived in Egypt without the clan, without the tribe, right? It's one thing to grow up and stay, you know, uh, connected to God when you live in uh, Pikesville, okay? It's another thing to do so in Omaha, right? It's a whole different story. So, so not just Omaha, it's like a, a better example would be like Vegas, you know, in the, in the 70s. You know, that, that's what it is, right? Mitzrayim was Vegas. Mitzrayim was, was worse than Vegas, right? Basically, you have these two sons who are growing up in the, in, in, the, in the Egyptian royalty, and somehow they made it. So this would be somehow, like some, on some level, a reward for them. Good. Excellent. Now, this next part is where things start to get strange, okay? Actually, let's read one more passage, then it gets strange. Um, children that you have after them, they will belong to you. They will, be, uh, they will be included with their brothers in their inheritance. Okay, so fine. So basically, Yosef is being told that your two sons, Ephraim and Asher, were born before I came. They are going to be like Reuben and Shimon. Essentially, you're going to get a double portion, and their descendants will get a part of the land. Now, what we didn't fully address is... Um, okay, let, let's keep on reading, actually. Let's keep on reading, and here's where, again, where it gets strange. Vani bevoi mi padan. When I came from Padan Aram, mesa alai Rachel be'eretz Kenan baderach. Rachel, meaning your mother, died when we were in Canaan on the way. Ba'od kivras eretz levo Ephrasa, we are at a certain distance from Ephrat, ve'ekbarasham b'derech Ephrat, and I buried her on the pathway to Ephrat, he beis lachem in beis lachem. Okay, so all of a sudden, Yaakov decides to bring up the death of his beloved wife, who also happens to be the beloved mother of Yosef. Why is this brought up over here? Okay, so good. You're in good company. Rashi suggests that the reason that this is brought up over here is because Yaakov is concerned that Yosef will be mad at him for the fact that he didn't bury his mother in the regular family burial place, and therefore he brings it up over here. Good. What questions do you have on this approach? That's Rashi's approach. That the reason it's being brought up over here is a way of addressing any of the concerns that Yosef might have and the fact that Yosef says, hey, you didn't take care of my mother. Why should I take care of you? So Yaakov is addressing that here. Yes. Because the second conversation is different. He's already sworn that he would do it. Why ding, ding, ding. This is why I made that uh, overly emphasized, right? So good. So question number one is, a te- is, a, is, a, is, is context, right? This is a new episode, right? And that's why I emphasize there's two meetings with Yaakov and Yosef. The first meeting was all about where Yosef is going to be buried, where Yaakov is going to be buried. There, in that context, Yo- Yaakov should have brought up, oh, and I buried your mother, I want to address that over here. He doesn't. There, Yosef swears. This is a new conversation. This is about the double portion. He gives him a double portion. He says, by the way, I just want to let you know, your mother, when she died, I buried her on the way. This has nothing to do with the context. And again, I'm sure there's an answer to Taraj's approach, but, but it seems a little out of place, according to this. Any other questions on this approach? Yes? Bring up the fact that he wants to be buried near first wife, near Leah. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of 
know, here I'm talking to my son. Right. Uh, who was from the other mother. And now uh, I have to, you know, mention that I want to be buried next to your, I guess, your stepmother or... <laughs> good, good. Excellent. And, and so, so I think this is, I believe this is where Rashi's, this, that develops Rashi's deal more, which is, which is true. Meaning the notion, it's not just that he's asking uh, Yaakov to be, uh, excuse me. It's not just that Yaakov is asking Yosef to bury him in Eretz Yisrael. It's that he is asking him to, A, schlep him quite a distance when he didn't schlep his mother. B, he's being asked to bury him next to Leah, as opposed to being buried next to Rachel. So all of these tensions are coming to the fore and they all have to be addressed, which is all fine. But again, the, the section is wrong. This section doesn't talk at all about the burial. That section took place through, you know, in the, in the last chapter, Pasuk um, Chavches through Lamed Aleph. And over here, right, so that's, again, you're a good company. That's Rashi's approach. But I don't understand textually or, or just, it just doesn't fit over here. It should have been earlier. Is there another hand? No? Okay. Um, also, by the way, Yaakov doesn't exact, does, does he explain himself? He doesn't really explain, the simple read of the text just says, by the way, right, he, she died while I was on the road. Okay. He should have taken her to... Hebron, where our family's buried. He doesn't explain why, he just says, she died on the road. Okay, right? So, so there's many mystic, you know, there's many midrashic explanations that she's buried there for a, a future purpose. When the children of Israel are, are exiled, they're going to stop at Kevar Rachel, and there's a beautiful, beautiful uh, piece in the, in, in, in the Navi and the midrash. But, but the simple read is that there is no apology over here. Okay? So, yes? Ah, okay, good, good. So we actually, this is, this is an, an, an indication of that, of that principle, um, and that's good. Although he doesn't spell, spell it out explicitly, that's how some understand what he's saying. And we have a very strong emphasis on what we call kavod hames, on the respect of the dead, and we do not delay, and unless we absolutely, absolutely must, but we try as best as we can, um, out of deference to the, to the departed, to bury them as soon as possible. And one of the best sources for that is exactly this. So excellent, excellent point. Yes, this... this and good, so he could have been married to right. That that does alleviate a whole different uh, uh, issue in Yaakov's in Yaakov's life as well. That's right about the ability to be married to two sisters. Um, this leads the Ramban, by the way, to say that uh, you know he he wants to entertain the possibility that our that our forefathers kept the Torah. He says clearly they didn't keep the Torah entirely. They married two sisters, but perhaps, and he uses this as a proof, perhaps only in Israel do they keep the entire Torah. And one of the points that he makes is Rachel dies as soon as they enter. And, you know, and fine. Okay, fine. So here, here's, uh, here's the alternative. So again, let's just quickly review the simple classic approach and then, and then we'll, we'll, we'll pick this up again. So the simple approach is that these two sections really in some way relates to one another. Ya- Yaakov is about to die. He wants to make sure that he's buried in um, Eretz Yisrael. And so he calls his son who is most capable to help him out. He says, please bury me in Eretz Yisrael. He apologizes even though, again, it's different. So he apologizes for burying his mother at a distance. He gifts him with a double portion because of, the, because of the great benefit that he's giving him. That's the classical approach. Let's start going into a bit of an alternative path. And our, our starting point will be a comment by the Nitziv, the Hamikdavar. He says something very strange, which I'm going to build upon a little bit. As, as we pointed out earlier, death and, and, and life and, you know, where we're buried, and, you know, goes hand in hand with our sense of identity, as we spoke about just a moment ago. That's why there's such an emphasis to be buried in Israel or, you know, etc. So, says the Nitziv, he says that since your mother died in a strange place, in an unsettled fashion, she died on the way. 
She didn't die, you know, in a, in a, in a, in a, in a, in a bed, you know, in a, in, a, in a more, what we'll call normative fashion. It indicates that there is going to be some issue with her entire family. It's a reflection of who she is and what her fam- the role of her family in our life. Now, um, we also know that, uh, that okay, so that, that, that's the point that he makes, okay? Intriguing point, but he says her death was some form of a divine sign that there is something over here that needs to be, that needs to be addressed that, 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 or is imperfect, something which is not settled completely, okay? Um, further, he points out, if you recall, the, there, is a, there is a statement, which we didn't really spend too much time on, but before Yo- Yaakov tells Yosef, that his two sons will be like Reuben and Shimon. He says, oh, by the way, I was given this promise in Luz that I'm going to be multiplied and I'm going, to, I'm going to inherit the land. Okay, so why was that mentioned over here? So that actually took place right around when Rachel dies. It's all before Binyamin is born. Okay, so there's this blessing that you're going to have a connection to the land and that you're going to be multiplied. And you connect that to the death of Rachel in this un- abnormal fashion, this unsettled fashion, it seems to indicate that that blessing, that blessing of children, the blessing of connection to land, in some way will be lacking in relationship to Rachel's progeny. Who is Rachel's progeny at the time of that blessing? She only has one son, Yosef. You with me? I know there's a little bit heebie-jeebie mystical, right? But basically, again, there's this blessing given that you're going to have be fruitful and multiply. There's a blessing given you're going to have an inheritance of the land. This is given while 11 sons are alive. And then, and then Rachel dies while she's giving birth to Binyamin. That death indicates there's something unsettled about her connection to these blessings and her identity as a, as a matriarch. And so the Hamik Dever suggests that what this means to Yaakov, Yaakov's interpretation of these events is to tell him that there is something that is a little bit off with his progeny as it relates to the ones that were born when this blessing was given. Again, Yosef. Okay? With me? I know this is a little bit mystical. Okay? Um, parenthetically, parenthetically, would this perhaps help us understand why Yaakov, if Yaakov has some inkling that there is something that is potentially off, unsettled with his Children, i.e. Yosef, specifically with Yosef, would that help us understand a little bit more why Yaakov spends more time and attention on Yosef? It certainly would, right? Again, if you have, uh, you know, two children and one child is, is doing great and everything is perfect and one child, you, keep, you have an indication that, you know, things are not going so great. Obviously, you need to put more resources. Again, you have to find the balance as best as you can, but you need to put those resources into the child which you think may not succeed. Right? So Yosef is given a lot of extra treatment. One way of understanding that is he, Yaakov just blindly loves this child. He's, he's blinded by his, by his, by his uh, whatever, his nature. Alternatively, alternatively, based on the fact that he has some inkling that something is not perfect over here, he wants to invest more into Yosef to ensure that he succeeds. Yes? So before you started this, what I was thinking is much simpler, which is he's pre, what's it called when you say beforehand, he's pre-saging, he's saying things don't always go the way that they're supposed to go. Things sometimes, for one reason or another, are switched over, which is 
which is, you know, sort of giving him a warning of what's going to happen. You think it's not right. So uh-huh, this, uh-huh. this wasn't so right. So you may in another minute. Uh-huh, so uh-huh. Giving him a general sense that, that things don't always make right. sense at first glance. Okay, okay, good, good, good. Let, let's, 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 let's continue this line of reasoning. Let's go one further Pasuk, okay? Let's go to Pasuk Ches now, okay? You're with me on page 270. Yaakov then sees the children of Yosef. And he says, who are these people? Who are these people? Now, what's that question all about? Strange. It's strange. Right um, now, it could be it could be that his uh, right that we're going to told in we told in a moment that Yaakov does not see so well. Okay, he doesn't see so well, um, but it doesn't tell us that before this verse. It says that at a later point. Okay, so what does it mean when he says, "Who are these?" He's so. Th- never met them, no? Has he ever met them? Sure, I, I would imagine this is already towards. And he's been living in Egypt for seventeen years. Right, He's, he knows them quite well, presumably. You know, the, the midrashim suggests that that uh, Ephraim spent a lot of time with this father, but seven, he's been living in Egypt for seventeen years. Presumably, he knows them, right? Um, and uh, you know, you t- taking it one step further, the midrashim suggests that Yaakov certainly knew who they were, but at that moment, the divine presence left him. He turns to these sons. He wants to bless these sons. And all of a sudden, the divine presence left him. And the midrashim suggests, based on their progeny, their descendants. Okay, that's the midrashic read. Sorry, yeah. It's reminding me of Yaakov's experience with Yitzchak. Yes, there certainly are. There's certainly a lot of. There, there, there is some of that. We're not going to get to. I'm not going to go further because that's going to take us into that whole territory. But even just with that question alone, you know, the simplest read could be he does see them. But there is some form of a critique over here. You know, there's actually a lot of, a few famous paintings of the children of, uh, of Ephraim and Manasseh getting blessed by Yaakov, okay? Um, there's a wide variety of the, the pictures. I, I should have brought in some of the pictures. But in some of them, you have Yaakov's children dressed as you'd imagine they'd be dressed. How would they be dressed? Egyptians. Not as Canaanites, but as Egyptians, as full-fledged Egyptians. And so Yaakov's question of who are they is not a question of what's their names. I know their name. But he's now turning to Yosef, and perhaps this is the final blow in this entire section. He's saying there is something that I had some foreboding, that something was going to be a little off with this, with you. And he turns to his son and says, and who are these? Who are these people? Who are these? I don't recognize this way of life. My other grandchildren look very different. Your children, they look like Egyptians. Yosef, throughout, Yosef is the only one of the Shvatim who has two names. He is Yosef. And he's Tzafnas Paneach. He has, to some extent, an Egyptian identity. There is this part of Yosef which isn't fully, which isn't fully a Yisrael. He's a Tzaddik. Don't get me wrong. He is absolutely righteous. As, as we spoke about, we alluded to, and we'll see certainly at the end of this week's Torah portion, in his forgiveness of his brothers, in his looking out for his brothers, righteous beyond doubt. But in terms of his culture, in terms of his way of thinking, in terms of who he is, even from, from the beginning, uh, you know, his, his, even from his time in, in, in when he, before he even made his way to, uh, to, to Egypt, you know, the, the commentators already point out that even the things that he's, uh, that he's imagining, um, the, 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 the moon and the stars, these are Egyptian signs, much less so than what we call Jewish signs. There is something which is draw, Yosef is drawn to in this universal type thing, this more Egyptian type thinking, more so than anyone else. And therefore, in that light, perhaps what we're reading is something dramatically different than what we thought. Well, we, the simple way, again, I'm just going to recap one more time. The simple read of this passage, Yosef is his favorite son. Yosef is the most capable son. He turns to Yosef, gives him a gift, and asks him a favor. In this read, but what we don't understand according to that read, is why is there the mention of his mother's death? Why is it mentioned specifically over here? Okay. So alternatively, 
Yaakov is being, is telling Yosef over here that I, the first, well, again, what's the first interaction? Bury me in Israel. Does he need Yosef to be the one to do it? Maybe yes, maybe no. The reason he's telling Yosef is because he wants to say, I want you to recognize how important it is to have a, a, a Hebrew identity, an identity as an Ivri, not as an Egyptian. And the message isn't over because he calls him back again. And when he's going to go ahead, instead, we normally think that the two sons are given a gift, that there is a gift that, that Yosef gets a double portion. Professor Kass suggests that really, based on this Hamik Dever, we could say this even in classical, from a classical perspective, maybe this isn't a gift, but rather it's a tremendous punishment. You know what Yaakov is doing to Yosef? He's not giving him double tribeship. He's actually revoking Yosef's ability to be a tribe by giving it to his two sons, right? It's a, it's a soft patch, right? I'm giving your sons the ability to be tribes, implying that you're not. You are too much of an Egyptian. You are too much not part of our culture, so I have to take it away from you. Haraya, what's the proof? Look at how they're dressed. Look at the promise that was given to me that indicated that I was not, that something was going to be missing over here. And so really in this read, this is not a gift to, Yaakov, to Yosef, but really it's a double punishment of sorts. Not a double inheritance, but a double punishment. He is, instead of giving him a double element of tribes, he is taking away Yosef's and giving double to his son to his sons, but in that way, again, so it's a nice way of taking things away. I could take it away and have nothing to your family. I could take it away and give it to your sons, which implicitly implies there's something wrong over here. Right? But it's like Queen Elizabeth. She's not giving it to Charles. It's going to go to her grandson. But Charles is not okay. There's something wrong with Yeah, him. yeah, good. Excellent, right? It's, excellent. No, it's, it's a fair analogy, right? There's a skipping of generation. Again, it's not saying the whole line is cut off, heaven forbid. It's, and again, it's much more, there's, this is more symbolic than anything else. But according to this alternative read, and again, this addresses all the questions, right? This explains why the whole bringing up of your mother dying in Padan is explained in the context of the two sons getting the blessings. Because it's the, the, the two sons getting the, the, the being like Reuben and Shimon is, 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 is a punishment to, to Yosef for not being a strong enough Ivri, a strong enough what we would call a Jew, right? Now, here's where the story ends on a, what I would like to say on a positive note. Because Yosef is one of the most transformative figures throughout, right? Again, we didn't have enough time this year to spend on this, but, but you know, the, the brother's fears about Yosef is that, and we sp- spoke about this a little bit last week, is that he's self-centered and power-hungry. And what does he demonstrate to them? Nothing of that sort. We know the, you know, he is the one who's able to forgive them. He introduces the notion of forgiveness to the world. The notion I could change my mind about someone. He forgives the brothers. Uh, but also the way the Torah portion ends. How does the Torah portion, how does the book of Beratius end? The greatest transformation is, again, if we're reading this correctly, Yosef is given incredible rebuke over here. He's being told, you're an Egyptian. Now, if you're Yosef, you could pout and walk away and say, forget this. I am done. I've tried so hard to take care of my family and he pushes me away. I've given them it all and he pushes me away. Yosef doesn't do that. How does, the, how does Parshas Vaychi and Sefer Bracious end? Who, jo, sorry? He dies. He dies. But he's bef- the first one, is he? the first one to die. But before he dies, what's his request and promise? Oh my and my God. request is, uh, bring me, make sure to bring my bones back to Canaan. 
right? We have a tradition, all the brothers brought back down. But the one person we really know is that Yosef does this. Yosef changes. Yosef is what we say, he's Mechabel the Muslim, he accepts the rebuke, right? We could tisk tisk. Yeah, Yosef was living too much, but at the end, right, what's his message? It's a message of incredible hope. God is going to remember us, right? The final words on his mouth and the final directive he gives demonstrates this incredible transformation that, yes, he was too much of an Egyptian and he lost out because of it. His father on his father's deathbed rebukes him and revokes his ability to be a tribe. But Yosef amazingly learns the lesson. He doesn't push back and say, I've given it all. He takes it to heart. And his last message, the last image we have of Yosef, and really walking through the desert throughout, you know, we have this vision that Moshe himself, Moses himself went and carried the bones of Yosef initially because they represented the ability to change, the ability to say that, yes, I may have lived in Egypt, not just lived in Egypt, but I was a full-fledged Egyptian. I was completely corrupt. I had a completely different way of living, but I was able to change it on his deathbed. He's able to turn it around and say, no, I know that God is going to look out for me. I want to be buried in, in Israel, meaning I am an Ivri. I am a Hebrew. I am a Jew. That is how Yosef turns his life around. And that is the beautiful way that the Parsha ends by telling us the great righteousness of Yosef. Righteousness is not being perfect. Righteousness is making mistakes and learning from those mistakes and making dramatic changes. Yosef is really one of those incredible transformational figures, how he's able to make that incredible, incredible shift. Yes, there's some questions.